You know, you know, it's kind of an odd time right now. No, I didn't know that. I haven't been paying attention. And, you know, tensions are high. A lot's going on. I've expected a lot of things as part of what's happening. What I didn't expect was being caught in a fucking tornado with my kids this morning. Oh, I saw a tornado warning. For yeah. real? No yeah, way. in it. In it. Like, in it. <laughs> I wasn't even in a fucking house, man. Oh, my goodness. You gotta I'm be- like, what the fuck is happening? Um, every, did you every see time, it? Was it a real tornado? I was literally in it. No, shit. Oh, my God. Clutching my children. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh. So that happened. Was that the same time that I was screaming at the top of my lungs and cursing at my eight-year-old? Because <laughs> I, I felt know. like I was in a tornado this morning. I mean, yo, for real? like, Dude, that's incredibly hairy. I've never, ever. Dude, it was scary. So, so you know, I'm on the beach with my kids. In my, well, I might give it up. I'm in my undisclosed beach location. And, you know, I see some black clouds coming in. My kids are late. We're out there for an hour. Sun, games, they're in the waves. No problems. See, like, a dark, you know, cloud set coming in. People start, you know, getting their umbrellas together and, you know, headed inside. But, you know, I got two kids. It takes a while to pack it down, start making her way up the beach. You know, one of them's little. And, you know, we start getting off the beach. And, you know, a couple raindrops come down. And then literally walk to the end of like the sand runway to the street. And before I know it, just like overtook us. I hear people screaming. Homeboy who's who's been fixing the deck for the last three months is stuck up on a fucking ladder. And both me and my son's hats blow off. They're gone. You know, I'm about to chase it. I'm like, fuck that. I'm holding my daughter already. Then I'm like, it's getting like really nasty. So I just grab my son and I'm like holding him in my chest. Yeah. Just clutching them both, basically trying to deflect from like the wind and yeah. whatever's coming. And, uh, and then I'm looking around and I'm like, I got fucking nowhere to go. And like shit just might hit us. So yeah. I gotta, I gotta get out of here. And I just pick both of them up, you know, with the umbrella and the bags. And I just start trumbling, you know, into the house. We got to get inside. We got to get inside. You know, they're spooked. Yeah, yeah. Real spooked. Oh, yeah. Finally get in. Of course, we're in the house. Every window in the house is open, you know, like it was a beautiful, normal day. Oh, my fuck. For fuck's sake. <laughs> so my daughter was real spooked at first. And then, you know, calm down when I put something on. My, my son just would not stop pining about losing his beach hat. Uh, so so he's out right now getting another beach hat. <laughs> I lost my very special Brooklyn Nets hat that I bought uh, that my wife had my son's name embroidered for me at the Governor's Ball show. Oh, dude. Yeah, like this very special hat that I meant to, like, give to him. I couldn't tell you where the fuck it is, though, now. Oh, dude. But we're inside. We're safe. No one was hurt. Literally, a fucking uh, roof of a church got blown off. So Really? Like, yeah, yeah. It was, like, no joke. So... You know, give a fuck about a hat right now, but still. Woo. Dude, it's just like when it rains. It's just, oh. But in a way, in a way, it's like, it's always that constant thing. It's the same thing as, like, coronavirus. It's like, it's like the earth is always here to tell us, like, we are not the boss, yeah. you know? We yeah. always forget. We get in these 
human scuffles, which are, you know, needed and, you know, whatever. But and then she, Mother Gaia, just always comes and <laughs> makes like, don't think too much of yourself, kid. Just statement. <laughs> she remember, she's like, listen, listen, hon, you're very cute. Your family's cute. I've been here a long time. You guys are going to be gone soon. You know, it ain't about you, dog. It ain't about you. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good lesson. Very good lesson. I think so. Mother guy is all over this. Oh, God. Dude, that's really incredible, Benny. That's yeah, interesting. You know? I, um, you know. Add another, you know, it's like, you know, you're old. So, <laughs> so you know how sometimes you're just like, how can I even know any more? You know what I mean? Like, I'm full. I'm done building character. I got nothing left. Like, like that's it. Like I'm, I've etched too many little fucking carvings in the belt and I got no moss. Like, right. and then another one, I'm just like, Oh, all right. Well now I've done that too. I've clutched my children in the middle of a tornado. Apparently. Cool. Uh, that's, so, that's scary, dude. At least I got them big pop bear hands, you know? Yeah. You know Which that, helped. um, that, the, the tornado, there was a big tornado. I don't know if you remember. It was like, maybe eight years ago in Massachusetts that went right. It went within like a half mile of my parents' house. And um, wow. it devastated the swath that it created. It basically wiped out like a third of my hometown from where I grew up. Yeah. That shit's crazy. I remember it changed the landscape. Like when I go to, even to this day, eight years later, when I go to visit my parents, it's like part of it. I don't recognize actually, I guess it was more, maybe it was nine years ago. I don't know. It was like a huge tornado that passed through central Massachusetts. All right. Devastating. I remember for years, Gaslight had a hard time getting shows in uh, in St. Louis. Right. You know, there was the creepy crawl and that was still a little like too big for us almost. Right. Uh, and we kept getting these offers up in Joplin, Missouri, basically from this one crew of kids who just liked Gaslight and had access to a weird venue up there. Right. So. We're just like, all right, fuck it. We'll start going up there. So we started creating this little scene in Joplin, Missouri, you know, where we'd stay with this guy, RJ, and his father. And we went there many times. And, uh, yeah, like maybe a year or two after the last time we were there, that town got flattened. Um, And people he knew lost houses. And it was devastating, man. You see, I mean, tornadoes are like... If Jesus, they, they the worst be, kind of yeah. natural disaster. It's horrifying, yeah. truly horrifying. There's nothing you could do about that. Well, speaking of truly horrifying, <laughs> how's life, Brad? Uh, For dude, fuck's sake. I, just, I oh don't know goodness. how to react to things. I'm going up and down, you know? I want to... Yeah. Uh, so we delayed the release a day. Because our hearts right? were heavy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for a lot of reasons. It's confusing, <laughs> you know? like, And even the concept of offering a distraction to people feels strange to me right now because you know people hitting the streets and the people in trouble aren't offered a distraction you know they right. just got to stay in it all the time and um so it's confusing i don't know exactly how to handle this what's appropriate so you just gotta feel it out and make your own way but i mean i think at the very least we should recognize the fact that you and I are both on the same page to completely eradicate the things that have been happening over and over and over again. Absolutely. 100%. The the thing, you know, it, it always pops into my head is like my experience with all this wasn't personal, but it started way before kind of the media 
picked up on it and where it started becoming a major thing. So I remember going to a show in New Brunswick in the early mid nineties, like maybe 96, something like that. And just recently there had been a police shooting in town where apparently a prostitute had assaulted an officer. All she had did was, was bit him very lightly or something. I don't remember the details exactly. And she was killed. And I went to like a cafe show to see my friend Tyler Rand play, who wound up being in the band Midtown. Uh, I don't even remember what kind of show he was playing. And that was the first time I saw like what a menacing police force looked like. They were expecting uh, a protest. They were expecting something to happen in town. And I was parked and walked to this venue and saw a parking lot with like a row of like 35 police cars, like in a row. And it just shook me like to the core. Yeah, that's what's intended to do. <laughs> I, I'd never I'd never seen anything like that. This just like it, it looked like a militarized thing. It looked like they could do anything they wanted unimpeded. And it scared the shit out of me. I couldn't wait to get out of town that day. Then shortly after, like two years later, two New Brunswick cops were arrested and then subsequently charged a couple years later for running a brothel in town. <laughs> and then literally the year later in New York City, Amadou Diallo was killed, which I'm sure you remember. Oh, and yeah. and that was like the beginning where I was just, I guess, at 18 or 19, even at that time, I was just like, OK, what the fuck is going on with this inequity? But the thing I misunderstood, right, that I want to talk about is like, I think because I didn't grow up like rich and I'm Jewish and I always had a shitty car and a <laughs> skater and a punk and I've been harassed by cops so many times and I knew situations like that. I almost thought I was in like the same experience, right? <laughs> you know, yes. I did. And oh, yeah, even no, someone I'm... like me had that that level of like privilege and a sense of. That I I truly thought I understood something I did not. Right. You know, and then the the one thing that's really been crazy to me is I'm thinking about uh, one of the early Gaslight tours. We were trying to make a drive from Birmingham, Alabama to Richmond, you know, quite a trip. And, you know, that trip going through the mountain cuts into like 20 miles of northeast Georgia. Right. Right. And we were still in our old shitty van, just the four of us, you know, low, like not looking great, probably. And we were pulled over for it was one of those like cops behind you, runs your plate, doesn't see anything, pulls to the driver's seat, see who's driving, pulls back and then pulls you over. One of those deals. Yeah. And, you know, got me out of the car almost immediately, brought me to the back. I wasn't even wearing shoes. So I was barefoot and starts interrogating for almost an hour and we didn't know what the fuck was going on. It turned out he was just waiting for another guy to show up so he could search us. Um, right. At that point, you know, I was like, they're playing good cop, bad cop. They're trying to ask all these questions. You know, it was kind of like, Hey, we're from New Jersey. We're not going to fall for fucking that shit. Okay. We're not admitting anything <laughs> to you douchebag, you know, like you're going to have to fucking look if you want. And, you know, and they kept us there. And I did. I even had a fear that they were going to plant something on us. Right. And it was like one of those really kind of scary police situations where they have all that control over you. And even then, I never 
thought I was in any kind of physical harm. Right. I never thought there was a physical threat to my body or my life through that entire experience. I thought they might plant weed on me. I thought they might lock us up. I thought they might keep us in Georgia. You know what I mean? Like, not great stuff. But there's a difference here. You know what I mean? And even someone who's, like, Jewish and a punk from New York City, as fucking liberal as it gets, there's still a fucking difference we have to recognize, like, and fully have to recognize. And if if there's anything I can find maybe positive right now is that I think a lot more people are having that reflection. You know, there's one band that can take you out of it for at least a few songs. <laughs> and I may have to go listen to them uh, after this. And oh yeah, we've got their singer here with us for today's episode. Yeah, so this was so awesome to have Milo on. I wish we were releasing it in a different context when I could have told all the stories about how much I love Milo prior <laughs> to doing this. But yeah, I didn't, you know, it's a fucking podcast. I got some things to get off my chest, you know? <laughs> I don't feel like going on Twitter for the next fucking 45 minutes. Um, yeah, it was awesome that Milo came on with us. The Descendants played a super pivotal role in in uh in my life but this intro is long let's get into the interview let's hear milo dude it's going well how you doing man i'm okay just uh hunkered down hunkered down <laughs> yeah you're in uh you're in sunny southern california i imagine no no I'm li- i live in delaware uh oh that's right yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been here since what ninety nine, actually. So it's I lived here longer than any, I've lived anywhere else, really. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. When I was putting it together, and that, that's because of the Dupont connection down there. Yeah, my wife got a job at the University of Delaware back in ninety nine, and I just kind of, uh, you know, we were we were living in Wisconsin at the time, and I right figured, well, I guess I got to move to Delaware. <laughs> so I mean, those are some big jumps, like like you know, growing up full-on Southern California style and then winding up in Wisconsin and Delaware. Those are yeah. interesting steps. I mean, uh, do you still feel like a, a Californian in Delaware or are you a Delaware guy now? I think I'm a Wisconsin guy. Oh. <laughs> I'm a Wisconsin guy who wished it wasn't so cold there, but like, wouldn't that be great if I could live in Wisconsin? I really liked, uh, we were there for like uh, nine years and I really liked uh, the people there, the the town. I was in Madison. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's it was a great, great town, man. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, and when I moved out here, that 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 was a big, a bigger culture shock for me moving to here right. from Wisconsin than it was moving to Wisconsin from California. Just because uh, you know, I I just got used to the pace of life in Madison sure. and being able to ride my bike to school or walk to school or just do whatever. And out here we moved into this, you know, it's a very driving based culture out here. Yeah. Kind of similar to LA really. Sure. Um, so what, what was it like for you when, uh, when this quarantine started, is there a, uh, a flashbulb moment for you when, when this went from uh, something we were all looking at to something you needed to, take really seriously and make a plan for with your family? Uh, yeah, I think, I think like March, early March, 
my daughter said one one Friday or Thursday or Friday, she said, "Well, they're, they're having us they're having us leave school school early." Mm-hmm. And and she said, "Can we go to the gym?" And I said, "No, we can't go to the gym. Right? That's like COVID central there." Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was like the first time where I was like. Uh, yeah, let's not go, ever go to the gym again, you know, right. this kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, it's about and, the first yeah. thing I took out as well, <laughs> but I had, I had, uh, thoughts earlier on that it was going to, that it was just going to go badly right here in the States because actually I, I got invited by, uh, do you, I don't know if you know the dag nasty guys that, that do field day. Uh, oh, right. Like, okay. Yeah. Doug, I, yeah. Doug and, uh, and, uh, um, yeah, whoever's in field day, but Doug Carrion had invited me to uh, to play with them in H two O, and this would have been in mid February. All right, and I said that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah, happen. I, he said, "What? What's the problem?" I said, "We're you know we're we are no longer ex- uh, exceptional. You know, people talk about the except exceptionalism in the yeah. U.S., and we are not that clearly at this right. point. And I had already kind of garnered." from watching the news that, that this is just going to be botched yes. all along, you know, and, and, and sure enough. So that, that, to, that mid February time point, I, I just kind of really had a sinking feeling that, you know, it wasn't going to work out. And the main reason it, I figured it wasn't going to work out is because testing was not going to happen. Right. Uh, you know, that's been the main thing is like, you could tell that just they weren't lifting a finger to make that happen in any kind of uh, way, in any kind of effective way. And sure enough, that's how it all went down, you know? Yeah, it was interesting. It's almost like one of the first times, right, American exceptionalism is actually kind of biting us in the ass, you know? Like, like yeah. how much well, better suited would we be if yeah. we were in, like, an autocratic system right now where we're, you know, used to, uh, you know, getting an order from supreme leader and then yeah. we all just do it and we're, you know, punished greatly if we don't. And in America, you know, three people say one thing, one person has to say the other. And, and it's... Yeah. It's uh, it's like one of the first times I think it's really biting us in the ass, and that well, maybe not one of the first times, but certainly biting us in the ass. Did yeah. you have uh, like any? Uh, was it you know your background maybe in in science and the things you were working on that potentially gave you a better understanding that we were going to be like ill equipped for this? Well, I I, I knew that, I knew that the testing the testing was going to be the the. the the testing was going to be something that needed to be done, needed to be done, but that had to be done, not half-assed and had to, had to be done from a, from a kind of a, a, like a very carefully, careful perspective. So the main, the main reason why they just got off on the wrong foot is, is that the original test kits had a contaminant mm. uh, in them. And, you know, uh, you know, so and how that, does that, that happen? Like, uh, like what, what's the process that allows that to happen? Well, because it's based on uh, PCR, which is uh, a type of uh, amplification of DNA. And so it's very easy to just have a tiny bit of, of, of other, of other DNA in there that, 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 that can then be picked up by the ampl- amplification process. Okay. So uh, that's what ended up, I think, happening is that there was a PCR contaminant in their negative control. So these tests all have to have a, they, they have to have a negative control so that you, because if, if what happens if you, every single, single sample you test is positive, you go, what, that can't be the case. How can everything be positive? Mm. Well, it can be positive if there's, there's contamination in there. 
I and see. There was a, and there was, so their, their negative control was going positive. And, and so therefore there was a contaminant and, you know, and then they dragged their feet waiting like a month or so or a month or more to, to kind of correct the, the error. And right. it was just a, you know, it's just a complete cluster at that point. Now, do you think like it, it was more just, um, general amateurism and sloppiness, or do you think this was much more, uh, practical and this is kind of being slow and rolled out the way it is for, for political and social reasons? <laughs> I, I I have to believe that the mostly the latter because I think if you had if you had a a quick reporting back they send out these test kits and then there's going to be these quick reports back like hey dudes this isn't working and then the CDC has got to say okay we're fixing this pronto this is like an ASAP thing we're fixing the kits and that didn't happen right that clearly did not happen they dragged their feet and. You know, I guess it could be political why they drag their feet, or maybe maybe that's where there was actual uh, incompetence at that level, at the bureaucratic level. It doesn't right. matter which it was; they failed. You know, yeah, at this point, yeah. yeah. So I did a little research last night on Arabidapsis. Oh, great! Which which I read up. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I know it's creepy, but I use the internet to help me, and I found out that you were using Arabidapsis to identify genes important for crop traits. Yeah. So I called my friend Nate Morris. He's a guitar player in a band called Polar Bear Club and a bunch of other great bands. And, I love Polar Bear, but they're not uh, around anymore. Not around anymore. Yeah. But Nate is uh, is your kin. He is also a uh, a molecular scientist. And, oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, and he's kind of my you know um, get out of jail free card if I ever have a question about this. So right. I was like, you know, I'd love to to talk to you a little about it. So so. The one thing I, I realized that I thought was cool was this plant, Arabidapsis, right? It's a mustard plant. Yep. And it's been being used for study over, what, 150 years for genetic research? Yeah. Um, now, like, he was trying to explain it to me. What, what exactly is the purpose of everybody using the same plant to study and why that one? Well, I, the reason why you would use a plant like Arabidopsis is that it has a smaller genome than than most than any pretty much any other crop plant. So of course we'd love to do genetics research directly on corn or directly on soybean. Right. But but those genome sizes are so big, uh, and the, just the, gen, the genetics is more complicated mm-hmm. because of that. Um, and so with a small genome size, it's easier to pinpoint uh, gene the, the the function of a particular gene in the genome. Uh, and, and plus if there's lots of tools available for working on, on that particular model plan. So for Rabidopsis, uh, you can transform it very easily. That means you can put uh, exogenous nucleic acids into it and then check those exogenous nucleic, nucleic acids for how they function. Mm-hmm. So there's that, those are the two main reasons is, is the ease of being able to, to transform it and the small genome size. And then of course, you know, people then want to know, well, you're not ever going to make a crop out of Arabidopsis, so how do you how do you deal with that? And right. the, what you do is you bank on the fact that within the plant kingdom, there's a fair amount of similarity at the genetic level, mm. aside from like I said, the genome sizes and everything. But but on a gene per gene basis, you hope that there's enough enough similarity that you can make that you can extrapolate from genes that you find in Arabidopsis to then a, some kind of a homologous gene. That you'd find, say, in, in 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 corn or in soybean, that kind of thing, and you have to translate all your all your findings 
into the into the crop plan at that point. And that's what we that's what we were doing. So my stuff was to work on the on the so called model plant Arabidopsis and then translate those findings into uh, crop plant like corn. Very cool. Yeah. Now, like what? And since you were so involved in that, I mean, I, I live in a house where you know I'd, I'd get I'd get beaten if I brought certain types of genetically modified foods like through the front door and gave them to my kids and stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, like you know, and I have this conversation with my wife often, where I know there might be negative things to these, but I also don't think the people behind the science ever were malicious about it. It seems like right. the intention was good. Um, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on like uh, genetically modified foods and their safety and the public backlash from you know organic eaters and stuff like that? Well, I mean, I think we'd all. Even in the even in the field, we were always working towards more and more uh, less less invasive manipulations of of the genomes. I mean, the thing about it is uh, the way that you know the way that we have uh, you know c- uh, corn and soybean uh, varieties now that that give higher yield right. is that the the breeders came through and the breeders bred for those. For some of those traits, uh, well, so how do you breed for traits? You, you basically make a bunch of crosses between different plants, and you also rely on natural mutation to happen. Which mm-hmm. you know, of course, natural mutation and nat- just natural variation happens all, all the time between different uh, breed, between different strains of corn, different strains of soybean. So, in fact, we're, we you know we basically use mut- mutants of a sort or genetically modified organisms of a sort to do breeding anyways because those are genetically modified by right. nature. They're just not genetically modified by, by humans. Sure, so it's sure. really, you know, when you start talking about genetic modification, anytime you have a, anytime you have a, 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 a corn variety that looks different than another corn variety, it's genetically modified in, in, in a broader sense. So I, I kind of feel like with 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 the what we were trying to do is just trying to kind of help it happen faster, so that so that we didn't have to rely just on on breeding to make it happen. But the other thing in all this that I always think about is is I think about uh, the like a risk benefit kind of a risk benefit right. analysis. Sure. And you you know anytime anytime you want to you know uh, have a benefit, and this is this goes for medicine, yeah. this goes for just all science or just all. All science, where you have, where you're looking at human, human, the human good, uh, you're you're always going to be looking at a risk benefit, and and the, the deal with, uh, you know, like for example, pharmaceutical that 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 we might get uh, approved by F- by the FDA is going to have some risk associated with it, but we always, you know, we always kind of say, well, if, if the benefit of that for to, to save someone's life uh, is 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 more than the, than the risk. People are willing to assume risk all the time sure. for for that kind of a situation, and I would just submit that that the benefit of feeding the world is a huge is a huge benefit. You might even sure. say it dwarfs it dwarfs the benefit of of curing some obscure disease. You know, we need to feed the world. That's what we yes. really need to do. Sure. And there's so that's that's part of what we are dealing with is is we want to we want to make crops that are that that are that are going to be uh more hardy and that are going to help us feed the world in the long run and what kind of risk are you willing to uh are you willing to uh you know to kind of uh submit yourself to for that and you know when i think about the risk of but to, to date there's been zero zero cases of people dying from a gmo that's that's just the fact of the matter right 
Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, and, you know, when it comes from the other side, you know, sort of the crunchy community, you know, there's the idea that the, you know, the FDA is just in the pocket of these companies, you know, certainly someone like DuPont. Um, like, what was your experience like with that? You know, did you still find the, the FDA and getting things like approved uh, and researched by them to be a very exhaustive process? Like, Well, I never really dealt with that because uh, okay. uh, mainly because uh, it's. Uh, it's just that's like a very that's like the end game that's like the last right, right. 10, 10 yards of the whole thing and we were so far removed from all that or just so far on the other on the other side of things on the on the discovery side i see uh, that i never really had to deal with it but it, it can be that can be a huge headache and and you know i think it's i think it's to be to be expected that it could be a headache because if the fda if the fda is really doing their job then they really do have to make sure that that these things are safe and, and I, I would definitely never want to, you know, make an end run around them. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I sometimes hope they would be huge pains in the asses, you know, that's my, yeah. my yeah. hope is that now yeah, they got to do the job. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of our uh, listeners are going to know who Milo is, but can you explain what you guys are talking about? What is your job now, Milo? As a molecular biologist, right? Well, no, because I got laid off three years ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was four years ago at this point. Well, explain to our listeners why Benny is talking to you about science, why you would be qualified. Because he knew that I geek out, even <laughs> though I don't do it anymore, you know? Hell yeah. <laughs> I was just excited to do it, man. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, this is, you know, this is just, you know, you read through your history and obviously, you know, from the get, from the beginning of Descendants, from really the beginning of when you seem to be interested in anything, you seem to have an equal and weighted interest in this to music. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and one, one thing I was wondering is like, you know, going through, you know, looking at what you do and even talking to my friend Nate, I remember, you know, like the whole concept of scientific exploration is it's very democratic and it, and it's, uh, it needs like community and it needs cooperation. And even, you know, he was explaining the Arabidopsis is useful because there's like a hundred years of research data that you can look back upon. And, you know, as he said, stand on the shoulder of giants. And when I'm listening to that, I'm like, this is kind of punk rock. Like it's sort of like a cooperative community based system. Like, do you think that was part of your attraction to it? Well, definitely. I, I I feel like people who, uh, people who like to who like to read about about the forefront of, of research you know what's the cutting edge of research and that would always get me excited I mean it gets a lot of scientists they want to they want to know what's current what's happening in the now and and then once you get caught up in that like these the, the discoveries the new discoveries that are happening then you feel like well I want to participate and you, well, of course, there's there's a bit of a barrier there. You got to go get a, <laughs> some kind of advanced degree, right. uh, yeah. at least to partic- participate, you know, most directly. Sure. But it's it makes it similar to 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 music and punk in general. Is that you know that's how I got into punk? Is I I was a fan, and then I got realized, well, maybe I could do this too. I could right. uh, I could uh, you know not only not only uh, listen to music and get my get my yayas out that way, but I could actually make music. And, and so I guess it's similar in that regard. I mean, it's, it's they, they share that in, a ter- in terms of a creative, a creative link in terms of, you know, it's like uh, just basic, the passion. It's a similar kind of a passion, I think, between the two. 
And was there like what do you, do you remember like really what drew you into this? Was it a family thing? Was was there any kind of connection? Well, I was in high school and my biology teacher was saying, "Dude, you got to give us a, an oral report." Uh, everyone had to do an oral report and I was, uh, believe it or not, I was a fairly shy, uh, shy, uh, teenager. And I was like, no, I don't want to. I was really resistant. I kept putting her off and saying, no, I'm not going to do it. And she said, if you don't do it, you're going to fail. Okay. And, and so I was like, oh fuck. Okay. I got to do it. And I just happened to chance upon or an article on uh, recombinant DNA technology. And just for some reason, just like, wow, that's cool. Because I saw all these possibilities, you know. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. recombinant DNA p- technology, you, it gets to be sci- like a little sci-fi, right? Because then you talk about, ooh, we're going to create monsters and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> right. But uh, but I but I got I got into the whole creativity of, of, of that side of science because I, I think previous to that point, I just thought science was kind of like people me- making measurements and then, you know, I'm going to make these measurements and then that's my science paper or whatever. Right. And I thought, right. No, but a sci- like science could be creating, you could create stuff with science and I could see how that could, could be done with recombinant DNA technology. So really that's how I got into uh, molecular biology is, is via thinking about the types of things, the ty- types of possibilities that, that could, that you could get, that you could do with a, uh, with, with recombinant DNA technology. And so that was in high school. And I kind of decided if I'm going to do science, I'll probably end up being like a, what you, what they affectionately call a gene jockey, which is some, <laughs> somebody, which is somebody who does that type of work, you know, recombinant <laughs> DNA uh, stuff. Um, and it was funny because I, at one point Bill had said, Hey, you need to have a publishing company for your, you know, for your music publishing. And I wanted to call it recombinant music. <laughs> Because I thought, well, because I'm a nerd, you know? Yeah, like, sure. That's so, perfect. And then he goes, he looked into it and he said, dude, Devo already has that. So <laughs> <you're>, wow. <laughs> so, so then I was like, oh, oh that. <laughs> well, then, yes, then it's kind of like a badge of honor that I chose yeah. the same one. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah that's a good way to lose. Yeah. This is like a lesson, too, to all teachers, you know, who feel like taking a day off or a week off or something, you know? Your teacher wasn't a pain who made no. you do that thing. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, who I mean, I think I, I had to thank. I think I might have seen her a few years after. I said, "Thanks for forcing me to do that oral report because it, it sent me down this, you know, career path, which is kind of fun." Yeah, you would just been a boring punk rocker without that. <laughs> yeah. You know? what the yeah. fuck? So, so you were speaking of high school. You grew up in what Lomita, California. I grew up in uh, 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 Manhattan Beach, which is another okay. just another suburb in. In that general area, the, the bigger area is called the South Bay of L.A. Okay. Uh, so like Lomita's South Bay, her, uh, Manhattan Beach is South Bay. So I grew up in Manhattan Beach and Bill grew up in Redondo Beach and Frank grew up in Hermosa Beach. So just nice. beach punks, a bunch of beach punks. And did you guys, uh, you you all, you knew Bill in high school, correct? Yeah, yeah. We were same grade, same school. Uh, and we were, I would say we were acquaintances, not really, uh, friends necessarily okay. until, until he sold me a copy of his, his first ascend, the first ascendant single. Oh, and wow. then I, and then I became, then I was just like his, the biggest punisher ever. I was like the first, <laughs> the first ascendants punisher. And I would be like, Hey, I got to go see you guys practice. 
Where do you guys practice? Oh, we practice at the church. Okay, I'll see you at the church. You know this kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you were so that's how. So really, you were you were just a Descendants fanboy, kind of. That's how. Yeah. Like, you got yourself yeah, I mean, into I, the picture. I, I, I bought because I bought the record. And it was just like this stuff's so cool. I'd started getting into at that point uh, L.A. punk rock, and I was listening to like the Germs and sure. X and and Black Flag and stuff. And but then when I when I played uh, the first Descendants uh, single, that's Ride the Wild. To me, it was like uh, almost more Beatlesy girl, almost mm. more uh, kind of poppy sounding and surf, surfy sounding, Beach Boy sounding, and I thought, wow, that's like a different take on all of this, and uh, that just, it really struck me as unusual, and I really dug it, and so then I yeah, I started going to their practices at the at the church, and I met Black Flag, and I met uh, you know the la- the last, and I met Red Cross, and and. Uh, and we and I that they had a mic set up when the descendants were practicing. They had a mic set up, but no one no one was stepping to the mic because they were just practicing instrumentally. Mm. And I said, "Well, that mic's got to be there for a reason." And I just <laughs> said, "I said, well, how about if I just sing Ride the Wild just for just for shits, just just for fun?" And they said, "Yeah, go for it, dude." And then I did it, and I don't think I was very good, but they kind of thought, "Well, you know, I guess we need a singer, maybe." So. That's awesome. And what was Bill pushing at the time? Was he like pushing a demo around school, a record? Like, no, no. He put that he put that single out himself on Orca Productions. That was his little his little uh, label. Uh, but he wasn't. We they hadn't really recorded anything besides these two songs, uh, "Ride the Wild" and "Insectic World." And I think they were just they weren't stagnating, but they were definitely, uh, you know, they were definitely kind of maybe. I don't know, looking for a new style or, or right. just trying, or just trying to kind of have fun in the practice room. I mean, you got to, you have to remember we were still in high school and it was just so much fun to be, to be in the practice room, uh, playing songs. And every once in a while, everyone's like, Hey, I got a new song. Cool. Let's play it. And sure. we, you know, by the time we recorded Milo goes to college, we'd practiced solid for, you know, a year and a half or something. Um, or more like two years and it was there wasn't really a lot of demoing there well, there was no demoing we just right. kind of uh we just kind of you know worked all these songs out in the practice room and we'd play them live but but didn't really think about recording them uh until until we did my Lego's college well we did do the fat ep though in the midst of all that but yeah right right and what you know what was the scene like for you guys um you know wh- where were the shows happening at the time what were the bands you were playing with what was like the local scene there at the time? Well, there, there was starting to emerge kind of a South Bay scene, actually, because okay. uh, you had the Hollywood scene. That would be bands like uh, X and the Germs played out in the Hollywood or were from Hollywood. But then there, all of a sudden there are all these bands coming out of South Bay. We're talking like San Pedro and and uh, uh, Redondo and, and Hermosa. And those are the kind of bands that uh, because we were the, we were practicing at the church – um, that kind of took us under their wing and would help us, you know, get shows. They, they like, like black flag would put on shows and they would just have us open for them. And we did a lot of shows that way. Uh, awesome. Minute men as well. I mean, they were, they were huge men, mentors for us. Um, and so I'd say you know, many of the shows we did were with, with, with the same set of like seven or eight bands that were all South Bay bands. Um, just cause you know, if you knew, if you knew the, the other guys in the, in the other bands, you, you could get on the bill, you know, and where easily. were the where were the gigs happening? Were they in town in L.A.? They were all throughout L.A. I mean, we we there were there were a few clubs right there in South Bay. Uh, the Fleetwood was one. 
Um, but most of the clubs were in Hollywood. So we, we play out in Hollywood. Right. I mean, my first show was out of the Hong Kong cafe, which is in the outside of Hollywood. Yeah. So paint me a picture. Cause when you, when you tell me what's going on, I imagine you and Bill are basically two parts of the Dogtown movie. Cause that's pretty much my frame of reference. <laughs> um, was it like that or were you, <laughs> were you guys different than that? Like, what was the scene there? Was it, was it about surfing, skating, and, oh. and were you and Bill like, uh, you know, were you guys the punk band in school that everybody liked or were you like outcast punks as a result? Like, like, well, we were, uh, I can speak for, you know, Bill and I, we were not surfers by any stretch. Okay. Bill was more of a fisher, fisherman. Right, right. He was a, bo- uh, yeah, he had a he, boat, right? Yeah, he had a boat. He would go commercial fishing with Pat. So I'm sorry, with, with Pat and Frank. Pat right. was just a friend of his, but Frank, Frank, the guitar player would also be fishing with him. And like he would come to school after having fished all night with like a, with like fish guts all over himself. And uh. so you can imagine we were not popular at the school. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I, I was not popular, but that was just cause I was, like I say, kind of a shy kid. Um, I had my crew of friends, but I wasn't anywhere near like BMOC status or anything. And we just kind of, I just kind of, laid low um so no i mean i think we weren't really you know we may have been one of the only punk bands at the school at the time but we weren't really uh i mean punk wasn't even cool then anyway so we weren't really uh you know getting winning any popularity contests yeah like when when you know milo goes to college came out what 82 yeah and uh you know at that point you know you sort of started the process of sort of jumping in and out of the descendants based on school and stuff and, mm. you know, your alternate interests. You know, I, I want, like, do you have the impression that, I guess what I'm asking is, was the entire scene different than when in 1982 was the choice to take the descendants full time, basically like a choice to not have a real life or something like that? Is that like one of the reasons you needed to, keep your foot in the other side or, or do you think it was possible back then? No, I had no, no inkling that it was possible. Right. I mean, the, th- the thing about the science thing is I genuinely did want to pursue a career in science, but, uh, but also, as you said, I mean, it's like, I couldn't even envision, uh, you know, doing music as a career, not, not the kind of music that I was doing. Right. Uh, and so, you know, and that, that didn't change, that didn't change till the nineties really. Uh, where you could even go, oh, maybe this is something you could make a living at, you know? Uh, so yeah, I, I think from that, from those early days, I treated it as a hobby. I enjoyed it more as a hobby. And that's how it was continued to be until, well, until 2011 or, you know, or thereabouts right. when we got back together for this last longest incarnation where I, I, you know, I kind of thought, you know, this is something I could make a living at, you know, I actually didn't even start treating it as a career till I got laid off from DuPont. So we're talking like, we're talking like four years ago, I decided, (laughs) Oh, I could be, I could make a career out of this. Cool. (laughs) So when you guys did everything sucks, right. That was like, so you were still thinking it was a hobby. Yeah. Because I was, I was working uh, as a postdoc. I was doing postdoctoral science. Uh, You have to ask your friend Nate about it. Is it Nate? Yeah, Nate. Yeah, yeah. You have to ask him about postdocing, uh, sure. but but uh, it's basically you're you're kind of in this limbo between you you've you've got you finished graduate school, but there aren't enough jobs available, 
So you have to go into this limbo thing before you can get a real faculty job. Uh, so that's what postdocing is. I was postdocing in Wisconsin, and I was kind of uh, spinning my wheels and not getting anywhere. So I, uh, I, 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 I had written some songs and talked to Bill about it, and he said, "Yeah, let's put a record out." And then I decided, since the rec- recording was so much fun. Why don't we tour for a year? So that's how that kind of got shoveled. It got, that 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 the, the the band kind of got inserted into this this period where I was in between, uh, uh, you know, my career moves in science, basically. Um, so yeah, even even then, even then, even though I, we toured really hard in in '96, we played yeah. hundreds of shows, but. But I was still kind of like, yeah, I'm going to finish this up and go back and finish my postdoc, and you know, going to go get a uh, you know faculty faculty position somewhere. Uh, it all seemed kind of uh, still like I was on track, even at that point. It's really wild to hear because from my my perspective, when everything sucks came out, you know, everything I knew of the Descendants prior to then was was from myth, uh, and then you know, everything sucks came out, and there's this great record and this tangible band in front of my face. Uh, and I saw you on that tour at the stone pony in Asbury park. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you asked me at the time, I, you were the clash, you know what I mean? You were the yeah. sex pistols. You were like as big as that. And I don't yeah. think people understand that prior to, you know, maybe even the, you know, green day offspring thing in the nineties, that, 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 that Avenue wasn't even really clear and there for people at the time. I mean, even some some kind of shift I think happened around then. Did did you yeah. see like uh, the Descendants growing by default just when punk rock had its kind of minute in the mainstream there? Yeah, I think we minutes, were helped by it. I think we were helped by it. Uh, uh, people who checked out those other bands you mentioned are going to be. They were thinking. Well, let's trace some of this back to there. You know, it has there has to be something that existed before them, and we were we were one of the bands that that they could trace back to. You were one of the descendants of um, Green Day. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I had to find that was for Jonah. Yeah, <laughs> big up, Jonah. Well, that's why they're called the Offspring, right? Because they're the, uh, the Offspring. Oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyways, no. So I think we owe them. We owe those bands a, a debt of sort because they really, you know, I, I, anyone who can who can make this the style of music that we all play, uh, you know, more more uh, uh, available, make it more. Uh, uh, something that everyone can get excited about to, you know, to create, to create a buzz around it. That's, that obviously helped us out to create that buzz and they were the ones doing it. So I have to tip my hat to them for sure. Awesome. I have a fun little game I want to play. I assume you're familiar with the periodic table of elements. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I want to take four bands from the past and you tell me which element they represent. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> Black Flag first. Black Flag. Uh, they're iron. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. All right. Especially, we, especially late Black Flag, later Black Flag. Yeah, yeah, total iron. Okay, we got the Ramones. Ramones. Uh, helium. <laughs> okay, we got the Minutemen. Oh. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with, uh, 
Oh, I'm, what's the one that's radioactive? Uh, <laughs> I think you're asking the wrong too. This is kind of your <laughs> world, Milo. <laughs> Ura- they're uranium. Uranium. Oh, good, good. All right, and last uranium. one. Last one. The bad brains. Ooh, bad brains. Hydrogen. Oh, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> uh, I love it. That's all I got. Hydrogen. That's hydrogen. Fun. Well, just I think that they're because they're so they're 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 primal. They they're the they they basically are the primal band. Uh, for and me, for me, it's like when I first heard the the pay to come single. Uh, that became the blueprint for you know, what the Descendants were doing at that point. Is that because, right? Yeah. Because we wanted, we were all about like, let's drink as much coffee as we can, right, and play as fast as we can. And then, we, then we hear the band is like, "Fuck, these guys beat us to it. They totally <laughs> beat us to it." So that's why they're hydrogen. Yeah, I love that. Um, speaking of coffee, so to honor you, I drank a lot of coffee to get ready for this interview. I figured, cool. I might, you know, this, how I'm going to pay homage to you. It's always been a big part of things for you guys. Um, and last night I had to do a podcast at like nine o'clock. And since I'm basically an addict to coffee, you know, since I know I have to do something at a time, my my sole focus becomes to ensure that I have enough coffee to do that and do it well. Yeah. And I wonder as someone who has been a coffee drinker as long, like how much of that is an invention of just my coffee addiction? Uh, I mean, I think we're living in a, you know, in a time of, of, of coffee, coffee technology gone you know, gone, gone ape shit. It's true. I, I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I, uh, like the dystopian future of coffee right now. Well, you're right. I, I mean, I've watched it evolve from like when we, when we would go on tour in the eighties and we'd gotten, we, at this point, we, at that point we'd gotten sick of basically the bonus cup. I mean, the bonus cup, it only takes you so far until you're like ready to throw up. Mm. So we, we figured, uh, we can't do any more bonus cups. So now what? It, it's, is it, are we back? Are we relegated to Seven Eleven coffee? Yeah. I mean, and, and so then we, we're, you know, that, that level of desperation causes you to seek out the Italian restaurant in town, mm. whatever town, whatever town you're in. Cause that's the only place you can get an espresso in the mid eighties. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's Starbucks wasn't coming for another no, decade. Yeah. No. So, and then of course, when Starbucks comes around, that was evolution. Number one, it's like, wait a minute. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have to find Luigi's, Luigi's restaurant to, to get myself a coffee. You know, I can just, like, I don't have to get an espresso. I can just, I can just go, go to, go to Starbucks. Uh, so that, that was step one that uh, in the whole thing. And then, and then to be able to, uh, to bring that technology into your home and have home, home units that are as good as anything that, that, uh, that, uh, Starbucks has was, I think another, another level. And so I, uh, we we used to have just a regular old espresso machines at home, and I'd gotten used to that. And then I realized you could just you could buy these ones where you just push a button and it grinds the beans. <laughs> yeah. And it yeah. You know, and so now we got one of those, and it's it was it's been kind of life changing for me. Uh, I first got it in the uh, late two thousands, and uh, I turned Bill on to it and said, "Hey, you got to check this out." And then I bought him, I bought him a version of one of these, uh, you know, all a fully automatic things and he said that i ruined his life for a while there because he 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 his his habit went from like three cups to like 30 cups in a day or something yeah was, i heard a, i heard yeah. a story of him making like 10 espressos and just putting yeah. them in a thermos 
Yeah. I have a hard time finding a cup of coffee now. You know, like if I'm driving through like Iowa and I'm trying to, you know, get that next step of the trip and, and I'm like, all right, you know, I guess I'm going to the sheets and right. getting some coffee. But yeah. back in the day in the eighties, I gotta assume your options were really Terrible. limited out there Very in the limited. middle of the road. So what yeah. what are we talking about here at gas stations at the time? Like single pot, one red, one black, you know, decaf calf, and that's it? It's decaf calf and the calf, you have no idea how long the calf has been sitting there. <laughs> right. It, you know, yeah. it could have been sitting there for like eight hours and then you're just getting just sludge at well, that it, point. It definitely was if you were there in the afternoon, man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The blacker the gold, the sweeter the juice. Um, <laughs> so what, like, I also heard that Bill sometimes pushes like five-hour energies and stuff on you, even beyond the coffee we had a period of doing that and i gave i had to give it up uh that was pretty pretty early on in this recent uh uh incarnation of ours okay you know we started playing again in 2011 and we went down to australia and he was he was saying hey here's some five-hour energy that you're gonna take on top of regular coffee (laughs) because you know it's like we i gotta have my regular coffee too and I had some heart palpitation experiences. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to repeat. And actually, even more for even more frustrating for me than that was that like that you, you know you you don't sleep after that. No, you you know you're you're up for like forty hours at that point, and <laughs> that's not a way that's not a way that you can run a, a like a, a a tour. You can't tour right and and not sleep. Not if you're the singer. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That that, sure. was, that was just a disaster for me. It's like I didn't realize at that point, like that you know how much you know vocal preservation relies on basically two things: uh, hydration and sleep, and that's right. it. Right. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. If you do those two things, you're about eighty percent there. And I just I had some terrible experiences in Australia on that tour, uh, just kind of dealing with the fact that I'd overindulged in this. Uh, in these in these uh, caffeinated stimulants, <laughs> so you would just get hyped up for the show and then not be able to, yeah. not be able to come down. At, and was Bill just passed out? Like it doesn't even hit him like that at all. I don't know how he how he <laughs> dealt with any of that because he was equally wired. Yeah, uh, but I can say that those were pretty bitching shows. Except that except <laughs> right. that I except that I paid the price. Yeah, coffee that. mug was nice and fast. Yeah. Um, so what's like the perfect routine then these days? In, you know, like, like perfect coffee routine throughout a day. Like what's the great balance now? Well, if I'm not, if I'm not planning on either singing at a show or singing for recording, all I do is I do two, two cups of coffee in the morning and I'm, I'm golden. I don't have to do any more coffee. There's no need to, right. uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily experience any kind of lag in the afternoon. So that, that's to me is, is pretty cool. Cause then it's, there's no issue with sleeping or anything, but yeah, if we're going to go play a show, I've got a, I've got a coffee up before the show. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if, if Stefan, Carl and Bill are coughing up and I don't, I'm just on a different page at that point. So I, I'm, yeah, we all coffee up and yeah. you know, you, you mentioned with, with Bill, I don't go to his extreme of, I'm going to have 10 espressos. But before a show, I'll probably have, you know, five coffees, you know, for sure. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, like that part of, um, you know, since this is really the last, you know, four or five years, the when you've been touring full time for the first time in your life, um, you know, since before that, you've taken so many breaks. do, Do you find a benefit from staying on the road and continuing to work on music that, you know, keeps your writing sharp, keeps your voice, uh, you know, ready to go? 
And it, is it easier to just be in the descendants without without the lapses? Yeah, I think this that's definitely the case. I'm not so sure about the writing part of it, but definitely the okay. but definitely the uh, the vocal the vocal shape because I mean to, it's always been a double edged sword, and this was especially true in the '90s uh, that we would go on tour for three months, and you think, oh, that's a brutal tour or whatever, but my voice by the end of it was like killer. You know, I just, I, right. it's, it gets so leathery and so, yep, yep. so full. And I, I have a hard time replicating that level of, uh, just, uh, conditioning or just, you know, vocal leather when we, when we do shows now, because we go out for like, let's just say a week, but then we're going to come home. So, it, but, but you know, we, I, we all have to come home to be with our families and, and, you know, keep from getting sick. So there's, there's reasons to, there's reasons why we have to do it that way, but it is definitely is not as ideal for vocal conditioning because right. yeah, like I said, I mean, and the way those tours would work back in the nineties, we go out for like three months and the first week of the tour, my voice would just disappear. I would just, I'd just be, I'd be in the gutter. The right. voice would just be like this disastrous, like gravelly thing. But then you kind of pull out of that and you start to rebuild it a little bit. And then all of a sudden you've just got this really tough, tough vocal that you, that you maintain for the rest of the tour. Right. And I, I look back and I go, yeah, I was miserable at times because I always felt like, you know, I'm not, I'm not singing pretty. Right, <laughs> this, ain't, right. this ain't pretty singing, but it was still sound, you know, people go, no, you sounded cool, you know, cause you yeah, were yeah, like, yeah. you know, and that's funny cause even, even trying to rep- rep- replicate, replicate that in the studio, in the studio, sometimes Bill has me sing. Uh, you know, for, for a few hours and I go, okay, we're done. He says, no, you're just getting started. Cause now your voice sounds really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's, so let's hit, hit record now. You know, <laughs> he, he knows your voice pretty well. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, is this still like, you know, how much are you guys still encapsulating the, you know, the go for all mantra? Is that still, still feeling into descendants or, I mean, I, I heard you at some point, you know, uh, be quoted as, is saying we got to go for all, but but we want to go for all and not die. Yeah. Um. So yeah. so what what's the balance at this age to still go for all? And I think the idea is to go for all when you're on stage, I see. and to and to not <laughs> and to really to 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 the not go for all when you're not on stage, and that means that you know it may have been in the past we'd be like get off stage and maybe we're gonna you know do some partying or something, but I don't want to party anymore. Right. I just want, I want to kind of preserve my health and my, and my vocals. I'm, you know, I'll have a beer after the show or whatever, but I'm not going to go crazy. And, you know, it's all about getting sleep now. And I mentioned we don't want to do three month tours anymore, not only because of our families, but because, uh, we want each, we want each show to just be all out. And it's a lot easier to have each show just be balls to the wall if you're not playing, you know, hundred shows in a row or whatever it's going to end up being, you know? Sure. So. Sure. Do you find any of like the, you know, the advice from when you were a young man, um, like, do you find any of it incorrect and would you like give a different set of advice or would you, uh, like chip back the go for all thing now? Or do you think it's still a totally functional tool for people the way it's presented? Well, I kind of feel like we always, we always kind of had, the notion of go for all being a, a musically a thing to to 
focus focus on the music right in terms of all i mean we probably didn't we probably didn't uh, verbalize it so well at the start that you you know go for all but make that be make that be all in music and now i feel like that's still that's still a known a known or that's still a a worthy a worthy thing is to is to go for all in your music um but yeah maybe i would probably i would probably what i would probably do is is specify you know the music part of it and and say don't go for all in these other areas, you know. It's, <laughs> right, right. You know, if you're if you're into drugs, don't go for yeah. all. It's like, <laughs> don't don't do all the heroin. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or like yeah. even for coffee, don't go for all <laughs> right, in, right. in coffee. Plus five hour energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't do that. Well, I but guess yeah, the I mean, band name the band name enough wouldn't have been as successful, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, I guess in in other regards, though, I think about what I would tell my younger self. Right. And it has it doesn't have to do with all necessarily going for all, but it has more to do with like the notion of music as a career. I really kind of had it backwards a little bit in terms of like, well, you know, music, music's always going to be this like, um, it's always going to be this hobby thing, and or make sure you've got this backup career. You know, in my case, it was science or whatever. Right. And and I kind of had that a little backwards. At the start, now you, we you talked about how it, you know, conditions were different then. Sure, but I but I wish at some point I would might have flipped the switch a little earlier and said, "I'm going for it." You know, I see. I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I took like I said, I, I really only a few years ago decided to make this career. I probably could have decided much earlier, and things would have been different. You know, what so. made you so you know like sensible at a young age in such a kind of nonsensical world? Like, how did you have that perspective at that time? I probably not really being, uh, I don't know, not being a, not really being a punk per se. I mean, I played punk rock, but I was such a nerd at punk. And I think that that nerd angle probably made me think more, uh, it, it probably allowed me to not glorify so much that lifestyle of like, Ooh, punk rock or just rock and roll. I wasn't, I would, I never really have, paid much attention or had much interest in, you know, glorifying it as, as a thing, like a, as a hero worship, as a, as, as a, uh, as a lifestyle. Right. And, and that made it easier for me just to kind of go, eh, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this cause it's fun, but it's not the be all end all for me. Yeah. And you didn't really like fully identify yourself as that. No. Yeah. yeah. Now, as I was wondering, like, you know, when you're jumping from the academic world to the corporate world to punk rock clubs and back to the lab, did, did you find that you had to like wear many hats in all those environments or do you feel like you were allowed to be exactly who you are in all of them? It, yeah. I, it, it was difficult at times for me in science because uh, you do, you know, let's just say you're trying to prepare a talk and you've got to, um, well, you got to be serious. You got to be, uh, you got to put on your science hat. You got to think analytically and, and your presentation is a lot different of a presentation than, for example, anything that I would do on stage. It wouldn't work over so well to stage dive at a, at a, at a scientific conference or anything like that. So, um, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, make I, you I think, stand out. Yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> definitely make, make some waves, but no, I think people, cause there were times when people would, would I would tell people, you know, I, I, I sometimes struggled to give a research talk 
because I get so nervous. Right. You know, it's because it's a, like you said, it's a different hat. Yeah, yeah. You got to wear that different hat, and people will be like, "Well, you get in front of all these, yeah. you know, thousands of people." I go, "No, it's it's different because when I get in front of people uh, to play punk rock, I, I, I literally, you know, you turn your brain off, you, or at least you turn off that analytical, analytical side. Yeah, and you're you're more in the moment. You're more you're more feeling as opposed to thinking. And that right. just, you know, you can't do that for a scientific talk. So really there was sure. already, yeah, it's, there are two like apples and oranges. And I, and I really had to work on that for a while. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, um, you've got so, your gang on stage when you're, uh, <laughs> right. I mean, you've got backup. Yeah, true. I mean, it's funny. I've backup. been surprised that we've had people sit down for these, for these podcasts who, you know, have played in front of a hundred thousand people and they're nervous. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I just went th- through the same thing, and people were making fun of me. I, my brother got remarried last year, and I, you know, I had to get up and do a speech. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm a fucking, I was a goddamn mess. I'm yeah. sweating, my hand <laughs> is shaking. Uh, you know, like my nieces are looking at me, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You serious? And they said the same thing. I'm like, listen, I'm not good at standing and pouring my heart out in front of a group of people. It's a lot easier to hit a bunch of fucking drums with your hair in front of your face, you know, right, like exactly. it's a totally yep. different experience. Um, yeah. So you have uh, two children, correct? Yeah. Uh, how, how old are they? I have a 18 year old son uh, graduating high school and a 16 year old daughter. Cool. Um, yeah. And I know your wife's a professor as well. Is it, is it a very academic house and did your kids wind up uh, being very into education, academia or, or music? Yeah, I think that they have, they've seen, you know, they've seen what, uh, we've both gone through and, uh, it's going to help them, you know, hopefully navigate their, uh, if they do choose academic careers, help them navigate those careers. My son wants to be, he's a, he's a computer geek and he wants to be, yeah, working computers. Um, my daughter's, you know, she's only 16, but she's already thinking, Oh, I want to be a physicist, you know? So, so okay. There you yeah. go. All yeah. Right. So they're, they're both pretty serious minded kids. Uh, they, they see what we do and they kind of go, well, I guess this is an avenue we should consider. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. If they saw some success in it. Yeah. So yeah, I think they're probably both headed for, you know, more academic or more academia. And is that important to you? Like, is that something that, you know, you wanted for them. Do you think it's a, a good path to go down? Yeah, I, I think, I think it would definitely help. I'm not going to say that you know that they have to do it, but right. I think it would help them. Um, although, although I also know from my own experience that it's not the be all end all. I mean, right. I went, sure. I went as far as I could, got my PhD, and had a go of it, but it definitely was not easy sailing for me in in the academia. Uh, as I mentioned, I did that postdoc in Wisconsin and, and got really, really kind of down on the whole, the whole racket of, uh, you know, academia and just, uh, it's just, a, it's kind of like a, it's a buyer's market, I guess is the right way to put it or something. It's, right, it's, right. it's something where they, they churn out all these PhDs and, and don't offer them jobs at the end of it all. And you, you know, it's, you got these PhDs driving, driving taxis or whatever. Right. Uh, so and that's I, after I, paying for, you know, 12 years of education and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'll often make sure that my kids know that each of, each of our situations, my wife and my situations are so, uh, unusual 
there's, there's, uh, I feel, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do both, both of the things that I've done. Uh, you know, both, neither one of those is, is a, was it all by any stretch, uh, a sure thing. You, 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 you work with whatever fortunes you have to mm-hmm. make it, to make it happen. Um, but they, they're very aware that, you know, that they can, they can go off to school and get these advanced degrees and still be struggling. And that's, right. that's the, that's just the fact of life now. You know? Yeah. That's just yeah maybe reality. you should tell them, you know, guys, I encourage you to get a doctorate if you're into it, but you know, you really have to love it. And if you don't, yeah. I think maybe yep. you should go uh, be a punk rock musician. Yeah, and if yeah. you take music yeah. full-time, wait till your 50s. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Milo, listen, we have another segment here, um, sort of a game, that we call Mystery Friends. Mystery Friends. And okay. what this is, is I'm going to ask you a question, uh, scenario that hopefully you'll remember, that uh, there wasn't a lot of people there, or there may have been a lot of people there, but it's not like... Probably not a story that everybody knows. And then um, you could give us the story and then see if you can guess who uh, who told us. To us. So who spilled the beans. Do you remember the first time that you met Joey Ramone? I, yeah, pretty sure. Because um, I, I was in, we were in New York playing at, um, I'm going to remember this. I'm not going to remember the name of the club, but uh, Coney Island High, it might've been. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was sick as a dog. This was this is one of our three month tours where we all caught the scourge, yeah. and uh, I was I was at the hotel room trying to convalesce, and then I was going to show up at the show, uh, uh, you know, at the last minute just to jump on stage, and and I get there to the show and there's Joey Ramone backstage. I was like, shit, man, I could have been hanging out with Joey Ramone this whole time. Of all days. Yeah. And so I was like sick as a dog. Couldn't really, it wasn't really like in the frame of mind to, to, to bro down with, with Joey. And I got there kind of late as well. So it's kind of a missed opportunity. Um, but that's, yeah, that was the the one time I met him. So do you have any, you probably don't remember who might've told us this. Do you have any idea who might've clued me into this story? Do you remember who uh, introduced you to Joey? No. No. So, um, Max Tuber from the, from the Swing and Utters. Oh, okay. You remember Max? Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah. Max told me this story, and what you're telling me that you weren't feeling well kind of explains it, because he hmm. said that it was, he said, he said it was one of the, I guess Joey had actually asked to be introduced to you as well. Oh, wow. And oh, wow. He, he described <laughs> it as like these two punk rock legends like kind of like at either end of the room and it was like at a you know like at a at a high school dance where they're both kind okay. of too shy to introduce themselves to the other one so they're like can you can you introduce me to to to, to milo <laughs> oh man you're blowing my mind here you're blowing oh my really mind. yeah because i mean fuck i had no idea uh, you know he's he's what joey's this, such a sweet person i really wish i would have you know, like I said, if I'd been, if I hadn't been sick and I'd gotten there earlier, we could have broke down and, and we just, it never happened. It's really kind of tragic. And yet to also hear, I'm, I'm just touched that he, that he wanted to meet me too. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just really cool. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. That's like yeah. a legendary thing you can always say. Yeah. He's such, he was such a great human being. Yeah. What was it? What was he like in person? Just, just mellow, good conversation, good listener. Or? Well, I mean, very quiet. Right, and I think the thing is, is again, missed opportunity. He was quiet. I was sick, and that I think there was a pretty. I'm I'm saying pretty short conversation, 
but you know, I think we got it across to each other that there was this, you know, uh, mutual respect going on in my case, more like mutual fandom, but you know, uh, yeah, it's, I, I honestly don't remember what got said, but just that the, we were, you know, just paying, paying our respects. And I it was, feel, uh, yeah, great. That's awesome. I feel like the realer the artists are, like the more awkward the conversation probably is anyway. Um, yeah. It's like the first time that. I met Bill, I was like, oh my God, this is my drum, one of my drum heroes, been biting yeah. his shit for half of my life, blah, blah, blah. I can't wait yeah. to meet Bill Stevenson. And we met, and I'm like, oh, this guy's weird, just like me. We're weird. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and this is going to be a weird conversation, and I kind of love him more for it. Like, if he was yeah. some politician, you know, who was like greasing me up and stuff, I'd be a little more suspect. I was like, yo, this guy's legit. Like, I don't think this is cool. Yeah, well, it's funny because my, my, uh, you know, hero has always been John Doe pretty much. Okay. Uh, and, and I've, I've now met him probably three separate times, three or four separate times. Okay. And each time I meet him, I go, this is going to be the time where I like, just, just pour my soul out to him, you know? (laughs) And, and I just, I can't do, I just, I can't do it because I, I, because I respect him too much to kind of to kind of put him in that position to be, to be like, I'm dude, you just sit there right now and I'm going to punish you. Just sit down. And I'm gonna, you know, that's just like, no one wants that, you know? Right. And, and so, uh, but the very last time, uh, I did do it. I, I, uh, I did attempt to, I, I kind of told him like be forewarned. I'm going to, I'm going to punish you because I had to tell, I had to tell him about the song I wrote on, uh, on hypercafium, uh, 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 which is called full circle. Right. And I, and I said, okay, I'm going to quote you some lyrics and you're just going to have to take it, you know? <laughs> and I, and I quoted him the first part of the song. He's like, yep. Okay. Thanks. You know, <laughs> I mean, what else could he say? Right, some guy comes right. up to him, like, you're like, you basically inspired my entire life, yeah. you know? So, Dude, you know. listen to my poem. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. so, you know, I, I've always felt very connected to your lyrics in a lot of way where, you know, you know, for, for, you know, a lot of music and lyrics specifically don't always connect with me. Like I'm, I'm going to listen to the drums. I'm going to listen to the melody first. And unless the lyrics are really standing out to me or they're really terrible, I usually don't notice them that much. And Descendants is one of the bands where like song after song, uh, or excuse me, you're one of the writers where like song after song, I'm just like feeling something I connect with very in a very real way. Uh, and, and I heard a story. So I, I want to tell you a story that connects us together. Okay. Mm. So when I was first dating my now wife, uh, she was my girlfriend, not that long. I was full-time touring and I had, uh, had her out to London to spend a few days with me when I was doing some shows there and we're having a day out on the town. I don't remember what I had, probably too much coffee and some sort of fried food in England. And we run all the way down to a subway station. It was one of the ones that's about, you know, 300 steps down, takes forever. We're waiting for a train and my stomach hit. And I was like, you know, it's one of those situations. I'm like, I'm either shit in my pants or I'm walking up these 300 steps and finding somewhere to go with. But here's this beautiful young woman who just flew out to London to hang out with me and be my girlfriend. This is a bad situation, but I had to come clean. And I just was like, yo, this is what's happening. I'm sorry. But I have to go find some more shit or else it's going to be bad, you know? And we walked up and I did it and I got out. And there was like 
very little fanfare about it. And it kind of gave me this indication. I'm like, you know what? This might work. Cause like, cause (laughs) you know, this is going to happen again. Uh, and this is, you know, what happens in life. And I kind of like the fact that there was really no, uh, reticence about what happened. I heard a story you said that early in the courtship with your wife, a bridge that you crossed was when you ripped a huge fart in front of her and she didn't tear your head off and you thought the same thing. Okay. I can live with this person and she's the girl for me. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely was like a, um, it was definitely like a, uh, a, a, uh, a moment of, of realization that, Right. This could work. This, this could, this, this is going to work. Uh, uh, and I think, uh, it's, it continues to this day that, that she <laughs> tolerates, she tolerates my, my gas, which is only, which has only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse yeah. as I got older. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm same. But I mean, she, you know, she, her name for me right now is old dog. Uh, <laughs> I'm called, uh, I'm known as old dog because it's, it's that bad. Uh, and, and I can say that maybe her tolerance is, somewhat less now. I, it, <laughs> right. I think, she, you know, I, I get a little more flame. I get a little more flame from her. Uh, I, th- I, th- days. I think she needs to recognize, I mean, part of being old dog is the fact that you wouldn't have control over it anymore. Right. Right. You know, no, I, I think she, she's, <laughs> I think she's convinced I, I can have control and I, but I just refuse to have control, which is right. You know, I, 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 I you know, guilty as charged. I, I, I <laughs> pretty i'm pretty bad about all that i actually wrote a song about it it was like uh it's a song about uh the intersection of farting and romance together um and which is it's so big it is, you know, it's, so does it's it a have song. a title yet it's called light a candle <laughs> yeah. Yeah. maybe because, any parentheses scented yeah yeah because yeah. i mean I, you know I, I don't know about you guys but you know it's when you have when you get intimate with someone, sometimes someone lights a candle to get intimate. Sure. You know, you're yeah. going to go in the bat, the bath, the bedroom and you're going to get intimate. I'm a Teddy lighting. Pendergrass fan, man. Turn off yeah. the lights and light a candle. That's, light a candle. Yeah. But sometimes I also hear, God damn it. Light a candle, man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. so, so that, <laughs> it's a country, it's a country song, by the way. Old nice. dog, old dog. So is there any sort of talk within the the group and the band on a like a timeline and and what you guys are planning on doing for next record and and how long you're just planning on keeping the the full time descendants thing going? Uh yeah, well that that timeline of course is affected by COVID, but at the same right, time sure. we we can all we can record during this whole period. We obviously have no shows, but we have we yeah. can record. We have recorded about. Uh, we tracked about, I'm going to say 30 songs. Oh, cool. Uh, but mostly, uh, or almost entirely, those are Stefan's and mine's uh, songs. Okay. Uh, Stefan's just been incredibly prolific in terms of writing. Just cranking them he, out. Yeah. He, he wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to write a song today. Or, you know, like, I'm, I don't know if he averages a song a day, but it's just something crazy like that. Wow. So he has just so many songs that, that, that he never writes words for. So I've been writing words for his songs. And then I've got my own songs that, that I've worked up by myself. So what we're doing is waiting for Bill to write some songs and Carl to write songs. Cause we really can't put a record out unless, you know, all four members are Sure. And, or, are contributing. So we're in a bit of a, it's, you know, we did, we did the recordings 
And we're in a bit of a limbo because we're just kind of waiting for uh, Bill and Carl to to put some stuff together. And it's it's one of those things. Bill doesn't. Bill's not very prolific, but when he does write a song, it's it's going to be the best song in the record. So <laughs> right. we, we kind of have to just wait. You're waiting for, <laughs> for Bill's time. Bill's golden nugget. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So I, I don't know how else to phrase this question because I I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to soften it up. Did you invent <laughs> pop punk? No, I feel like pop punk existed before us because I, I think of bands like the Buzzcocks, you know, and and uh, the Dickies, and bands like that. That uh, I felt like, you know, maybe a band like the Buzzcocks is is not really easily placed in categories. But then you just have to argue categories are useless anyway. Yes, because right. I would, you know, I'd either put them as power pop or I'd put them as pop punk. But you can't. You, there's something in that kind of realm of things and they were a huge influence on us hmm. i loved i loved the buzzcocks back then um so i feel like what we did maybe was gave it a more hardcore uh flavor but but uh you know i've i've often i've often kind of tried to push back on you know the, the that moniker of inventing pop punk it just, it just seems like it seems a little too cut and dried a little too black and white when there's so many gray areas sure. of, of other bands that came before us of course um, but having said that i love the genre i mean i still listen to sure. to pop punk you know it's a, just a just a great it's a great merging of my love of the beatles right. with uh with my love of the germs you know and yeah. that's kind of i probably go to my grave just still digging it i mean i think the thing you guys did you know, opposed to those bands like Buzzcocks and Dickies was, you know, less about the music. Cause you're right. The music's there. The choruses are strong. The melody is strong. Like there's a true pop element to those songs, but you guys gave it that California sensibility. You know, you gave, you guys gave it the, um, the feel that became, uh, you know, a couple eras of pop punk, you know, uh, right. Where where you're allowed to be silly, you're allowed right. to write a song about being hungry or being at a drive-through right. or something like that. And I I don't know, I didn't hear anyone doing that first. So maybe yeah. maybe the the pop element is is less um, musical and more kind of you know sociocultural sort of in that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask a, a question here, if I could. <laughs> Obviously, we're always we're always trying to get funny and embarrassing stories about uh, music, but. Since you also have a that second career, I'm just wondering if you have any like wacky science stories. Oh yeah. Uh, well, I, probably the wacky the wackiest science story I come up with deals with deals with the intersection between my two worlds because I uh, I applied it for my job at Dupont uh, and part of that part of applying for that job was that I had to give a, to- a job talk, which is where you roll in and all these very serious scientists sit, sit in chairs and you give, and you talk about your research. And I gave that job talk. Uh, and after the talk, I'm, uh, I'm talking to some of the scientists and they're saying, Oh, good talk, blah, blah, blah. And and these three guys show up and say, uh, can I get your autograph? You know, <laughs> and I was like, and I'm sitting there going, I, look, I didn't plan this. I trust me. I did not plan to have these three guys show up and ask for my autograph after my job talk. You know? <laughs> it's like, it's kind of, it's, so that was kind of like, you know, that was step one of, of me, you know, acing that job interview <laughs> right. was, was these three guys. Then, then I had the, the, the head of the company, 
or actually the head of the division, I guess it would be, who then uh, said, oh, who were those guys? I said, oh, they're, I had to explain my, my, uh, my, you know, alter ego or whatever. <laughs> and he said, well, and he said, oh, I'd love to see you play sometime. And I said, well, the, I said, all's playing uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, and I, uh, they offered, they, they wanted to come see me get, they said you could get on stage. So next thing I know, I go to the all show in Philadelphia and the head of the division is showing up with his wife and they're waiting in line to come see me play. And I go, uh, Oh my God, this is like part two of the job interview. Right. Is I had, is this guy's going to show up? And I thought I can't fuck this up. I got, I got to be really on my, my a game in terms of what I was doing, you know? Well, I guess after, you nailed it. Well, then I got, I, I think we did, you know, we did Coolidge or something on stage or something. And after that, I said, okay, I hope I get the job. <laughs> and so it all worked out in the end. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. Any, uh, any explosions? No. Like, that's that different kind of science. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hypercaffeine. We had explosions for hypercaffeine, but that was, of course, all part of the gag. Right, the gag right. of hypercaffeine. Yeah, but yeah. No. Yeah, I mean the, the kind of stuff I was working on was pretty safe. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, you know, small. Uh, it's it's all DNA. DNA you need microscopes to do what you're doing. Yeah, and yeah. small small amounts of chemicals, some of which are toxic, but small amounts of them. Yeah, you know? right, right. So I I personally know two children named after you. Uh, oh, yeah. Have you met a lot? Is this a worldwide phenomenon? It seems like there's quite a few. Yeah, I've met. I've met maybe. I could probably count them on two hands, but maybe not even on one hand. So it's kind of unusual. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I guess it's gratifying. Although I always tell them like, uh, that I used to get a lot of shit for my name growing up. So, <laughs> right. uh, I, I guess it's nice that, the, that, you know, it's no longer a name that, that, that gets you, that gets you, uh, you know, teased. Maybe now, maybe now it's, it's improved, but well, I think, yeah, I think what you could feel good about is that, so, so when I was naming my son, you know, I considered calling him Bonham. I thought it'd right. be cool. Yeah. And then, you know, I think about it a little bit and I'm like, ah, 27 year old guy asphyxiates on his own vomit. <laughs> uh, like maybe not the best precedent, you know, right, like, right, like yeah. as much as I love John Bonham's drumming, you know, they're right. eventually going to look this up. Right. You know, and I, you know, you so, named me after this druggy guy. <laughs> right, right? Exactly. So I think yeah. you should feel good about the fact that parents not only think your name is cool, they must have faith in the fact that you're not a garbage human being. And, uh, you know, they don't mind naming their kids after you and they'll look into it and actually be proud. Maybe this is a sort of half hearted attempt for, for parents to get their kids into school. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> no, I, uh, I've, 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 I've always been gratified that if, if, if people, uh, you know, see what I'm doing in these two areas and it's going to make it so that maybe that the people just don't always think of punk punks as being, you know, druggies. You don't, you don't have to be a druggie to be a punk. Right. Uh, you, you could be, you can be a student to be, and be a punk. And it maybe takes some of the, some of the, you know, dinginess out of the, out of, of that particular designation for sure it's it a punk so yeah that's cool all right so this is my my last question we can let you go um so you know i'm a big fan of uh when i get old great song yep. um and you know at the time i you know i'm listening to it with you and i'm like huh i wonder you know what's going so now we have 
over 20 years of time since you wrote that song till now. Um, <laughs> do you still ride your bike around town? Oh, I wish. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was that, that gets back to living in Delaware. Which yeah, is kind right. Of, You're out of bike country now. It's kind of a pit for that. I, okay. I try to ride it. Uh, I live fairly near uh, a, a state park, so I can, you know, I can. Will I still ride my bike in the state park after schlepping it on my vehicle? Yes, I will still do that. <laughs> okay, so part of it. Do you still sleep on the floor? Uh, not at my own house, but <laughs> at someone else's <laughs> house, maybe. I sure. Yeah. Do you still hate the cops? Yeah, I yeah. still do. <laughs> oh man, what you know, I don't think a day's gone by where you don't see some video of a cop putting his knee into someone's neck. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. And man. just like, well, in this this last one I saw, they killed him. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm I think the thing is is there's got to be there's got to be some way that that these I think the techniques the techniques are already there. But the cops have to learn the techniques. Yeah. And they got to follow the techniques and they can't lose their shit. Right. And there's just too much of the like, you know, just not, not, uh, you know, not following protocol or just, yeah, I, th I think that I don't think it's, I think if they were to just do a better job of, of following these techniques and they maybe wouldn't be considered such assholes because they, they, you see these videos and you just like, Okay, you're not doing yourself any favors here, you guys. Yeah, right. You, you guys are you guys are assholes. Yeah, yeah. There's no question about it. I mean, it's almost like just giving too much power to people who are wildly untrained. You know, it's it's yeah. like I've seen it to become a local cop. You know, you got to get out of high school. You basically got to go take a course for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you're yeah. a cop, and then yeah. you carry a gun, and you're essentially allowed to make something up and shoot me. So it's just like. Uh, I don't know. I, it's it's. I try to, you know, pick it back to the fact that these people aren't inherently bad. Every single one of them. I think a lot have good intentions. Right. But you can even see, like in your some of those videos, uh, that Philando Castile one in particular, where I'm like, that cop was scared. That yeah. cop was just a kid. He was a kid yeah. who didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Who got scared and made a yeah. bad decision and took a life because of it. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's not, it's not his fault he was scared, but it's his fault that he just couldn't use, utilize whatever training or, you know, either he didn't get trained or he didn't utilize his training, the, the training that, that tells you what you do when you're scared. Cause yeah, they're going to get scared. There's no doubt about that. Of course. But they got to use their training. Yeah. All right. So last one, we took a little course. <laughs> do you still talk about the old days? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I guess I'd probably do that more now than ever, just because uh, I they they were they were they're so important to me to who I am today. Sure. I mean, I you know just like for example when we we're talking about how I got into the band and just that whole that whole phase of when I I got into L.A. punk rock and everything, it still means so much to me to to think about uh, how special that time was in terms of. You know, the, the, it may never happen that way again. Who knows? I mean, it's. I'd like to think that some other generation will come along and and have that kind of blossoming of of this particular music at that time. But I'm just fortunate that it happened to me. Yeah, sure. yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So yeah, I'm I'm more than happy to 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 wax nostalgic about it. It's. I feel like uh, 
you know, it, perhaps there's an embarrassment to something like that because because then, then you're the old codger. But at, the <laughs> right. same, at the same time, it was it was a time that uh, that meant so much to me, and, it's, and it was a time that uh, that allowed uh, like my creative side to, to kind of to kind of uh, leave its shell. Awesome. So it was so important. Yeah. Well, I thank you for it, man, and and the. The work you've done has been inspiring to me for a really long time, and I don't even know if I'm doing what I do the way I do it without all of you. So I appreciate it, man. Cool, paint it forward. Try that's because I mean we 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 had we could say we say I think I talked about John Doe or whatever. We we have all these people that we that we also just you know revere, and I just I look back at them and and it's just I just think this is the this is why I probably finally decided I can do this as a musician because the passion never dies. Right. The passion is always there because you see it as a continuum of, of, uh, you know, of music that, 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 that kind of rides this wave of enthusiasm and then gets picked up by the next generation because they're enthusiastic about it and just keeps riding the wave. That's right. And it's like, you know, that's, that's why I keep, keep doing it. I feel like it's, it's it's something that'll never die. Respect your elders, kids. <laughs> all right, Milo. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate you uh, taking all this time. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Milo. See you later. Bye. Ah, uh, Milo. Hey, mm. so thank you, Max Huber, Swing and Utters, for the uh, mystery friend <laughs> story. I got to be sure. Thank Max because uh, that was a good one. That's a good story. Yeah. That was good, especially getting a Ramones cut. That's yeah. nice. Um, I was trying to figure out when he was telling, when he first told me that story, like why I wasn't, I would have been there. I, that, that time period I was hanging out at that club a lot and I realized I, I was on the road. I looked it up. Where were you? Did, where were you that day? I think that was, I think that was maybe the Sam I Am tour. I was oh, cool. on, we were out with Sam I Am for like, God, for like over three months. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think that was like 90 five or six i have to look it up and that was kind of like the that was almost at like the height of their powers too right oh yeah it was pretty big in those days it was a clumsy record it was so much fun that was a fun fun tour dude that was my sam i am breakthrough album was clumsy for sure i've I've covered i've covered capsized like everyone else and their mother has (laughs) yeah (laughs) but that was so awesome that milo did that i tried not to fanboy too much in that interview but Descendants are a really important band to me, like to the point that I might not be like a punk rocker without them. You know, I remember the first time I ever heard them and it was, it was sort of strange. Like my entrance into like punk and hardcore was through my first band. Like I was like kind of still like a grunge rock kid right. up until I joined that band. And then I joined and the singer John and the guitar player Torsten were pretty like heavy into the hardcore scene already at that time. They were a couple years older than me. So they booked a show at our guitar player Joe's house in his basement and managed to get this band Strength 691 to come, who was like one of the bigger, more well-known hardcore bands in Jersey, who were, we. I could do another podcast on Strength <laughs> 691 and their importance to my life. But uh, And I remember they played that show and they covered Camage. And I was like, oh, man, who's this? And I was soaking up anything I could at the time. 
And I went to one of those record shows with my mom. And the only Descendants disc I could find was uh, Hall Raker Live. Um, <laughs> so that was my intro to Descendants. Like nice. I had no other Descendants record uh, for a couple years. And basically all my favorite Descendants songs are the ones that they played on Hall Raker. And then in like 90, you know, five or six, you know, I kind of missed the whole all era. Right. Um, I was a little too young. And then in 95, 96, I was actually like a proper punk rock kid and everything sucks came out. Right. And that was like Huge. my descendants record, yeah. you know, like, like this one's for me because yeah. I'm here now, you know, and I immediately fell in love with it. Uh, I went down to their show at the Stone Pony uh, in Asbury to oh, see nice. them. And and that's where I reconnected with a guy named Paul that I sort of knew from that band, Strength 691, in that scene. And he asked if I still played drums, and he had a band called Yell Boy at the time. And, you know, because of that show and meeting him again, I started playing in that band, which subsequently turned into, like, the Low End Theory, who was, like, my first real band that got signed and toured and, right. like, did the whole thing. And connected me with these kids from, uh, like, the Woodbridge, Perth Amboy area of New Jersey, which is, you know, were my best friends for years. And uh, so, I mean, literally, like, before I was even 16, the Descendants shaped my my path in so many different ways, you know? Yeah, that's sweet, dude. So, I, this was another one, just like that Liz Goldwyn one, like... I was nervous. That, that's why I was like asking the scientific questions at first. I was like, listen, I want him to know that I did a little homework here and I respect his craft as a scientist. So, oh, yeah, big shout out too to my buddy, Nate Morris, who uh, provided me with the insight on molecular biology. Oh, yeah, right. yeah he luckily called me on his way to work at like 730 in the morning before that interview and gave me a brief rundown of what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> Molecular biology for dummies. <laughs> yeah. I actually, even when I was texting Nate, he's like, who's this for? I'm like, imagine it's for a nine-year-old <laughs> and then give me that. Like, that's basically what I told him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, man, that was awesome. So glad Milo did it. And, uh, Hey, the Patreon yeah. is up. <laughs> yeah give us money oh, <laughs> well geez. i feel guilty because people have been giving us money venmo at off track There's yeah been a lot and of that very, gives them nothing so at least now we can maybe give you a little bit back so the patreon account is up go to patreon.com going off track if you want to uh if you want to be a, if you want to be our patron and um we'll have a little bit of bonus content including I I just realized I've got some bonus com content from this podcast that I'm going to put up uh, for patrons on the Patreon account. Uh -oh. so, um, I was just sweaty and hot and crazy during that intro. I hope it's not that. <laughs> no, no, it's the outro where we where not only do we continue to talk a little bit about Joey Ramone, but Green Day and Jesse Mallon. Oh, right. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That so. was cool stuff. So, yeah, but anyway, thanks to anybody who does that. Truly appreciate it. And it will give us the ability to do this silly show well and for a long time. I yeah, hope. and you know, what's free is giving us a good review on iTunes. Um, and also, like, uh, you know, subscribe. If you subscribe to the podcast, it just gives us good, it makes us look good. 
It'll just <laughs> help ensure that we're Wait, around longer. To whom? <laughs> to whom, Brad? Who are we and, pandering uh, to here? The and, big uh, men? You know, um, are we like trying to get on Spotify? Um, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> also, the descendants are on Instagram and Twitter, and they actually were able to claim the descendants since they used an E instead of an A. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's at descendants for both of those. So check them out. Go listen to all their music if you have not yeah what would you what would you recommend like an 18 year old to start on well the new records are pretty good man i you know what i haven't strong i don't think i've really listened i mean i've heard some of the newer stuff but i haven't really listened to anything since since um everything sucks which is a phenomenal record which i think is i i mean obviously i was exposed to them earlier but uh Everything sucks. Is, I, I, that, that's probably I would I would say that record. It's so good. I mean, it's, well, my buddy Colin, who's a listener of this show and significantly younger than both of us, I asked him to give me like his top seven Descendants records right. or whatever it was, and he had a couple of the older ones way towards the end, and a couple of the. I mean, we even say newer. They're not that new. Like right. some of their post Everything Sucks records are you know close to ten right. years old. Right. Uh, and he is a huge fan of those records. And I honestly, besides for the last one, the Hypercafium Spazinate, I, I honestly didn't look at those records too much until Colin mentioned it. And I'm getting into it. And I'm, you know, I haven't dug as hard in as I'm going to yet. But honestly, those they got teeth and songs. And I'm like, oh, wow, like, these are really good. Yeah. And, and the descendants oh, are just sure, dude. They're, continuing yeah. to write, like, kind of. Perfect pop punk songs, man. They just never stop. Yeah. It's great. No. We need them. The world needs the descendants so bad. <laughs> mm. That's always what we've needed. Yeah, I agree. Clean sheets are dirty for a guy who sleeps on the floor. You know? <laughs> I've heard that line so many times and just been like, Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit, I almost forgot to mention the new mystery friend theme. Did you notice? Yeah. That's from Mark Stromberg, a Swedish going off track fan. Um, dropped it in there. Uh, the original theme, which we've been using for a couple of years from Evan Moore and Linda Everswick is awesome. And it will not be forgotten. We will continue to use both, but, uh, Mark's is pretty cool. Thanks again, Benny. Stay safe. Watch out for those tornadoes. <laughs> I will take All it easy, you. Brad. Thank Hope you out test. there. Keep your heads down and, um, you know, support the cause. Okay. Whatever that may be. We love you.